the incomparable. Number 348, April 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. We are convening another edition of Old Movie Club. Old Movie Club! These movies are so old, they're from kids. Sit down. They're from the 1970s. Wow. Is that before light bulbs? Yes. Old time. They had to set a, a, lar- a very large fire had to be set in order to project the film. Wow. It, was, it was a long, long time ago. Old movies! In this edition, we're going to be talking about two coming-of-age movies from the 70s, one set in the 70s and one set in the six, early 60s. Feels like the 50s, but it's the early 60s. Although by the time it's over, it feels like the 80s. Hmm. Interesting. We'll get there. It, joining us to talk about this, first off, the person who selected the films, uh, as he usually does on Old Movie Club, Mr. Philip Michaels. Hi, Phil. You know, I, I would like to point out... Uh, the 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 most recent of these movies, Breaking Away, is thirty eight damn years old. And if when I was eighteen watching a thirty eight year old movie, it would have been made in nineteen fifty. So you know we're we're all old. Old time marches on. Man. Oh, I know. Yeah, no, the seven the seventies, the decade in in which I believe all of us were born. Far away now. <laughs> yes. Old movies. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> In short, I'm closer to uh, death than birth. Good night, everyone. Yeah, that's Yay. right. Hey, <laughs> this has been old movie. Club. Also <laughs> joining us on the on the old movie highway, Lisa Schmeiser. Hello. Hi there. I'm pondering my own mortality now, wishing I weren't. Well, you know whose fault that is. It's Steve Lutz. It's always my fault. Yeah, I was going to blame Phil actually, but I'm happy to. Well, let's blame Steve. Blame. Just because. Hi there. Would you like to roll some balls? And also, <laughs> yeah. on this old movie club, uh, I believe perhaps his first time on an old movie club, it's John Syracuse. Despite the math, the math in quotes that I just heard, I would like to file a formal protest against this being an old movie club. <laughs> because these movies can't possibly be old. I know they, they can't be. They are fresh and modern, mm-hmm. and I watched them a million times when I was a kid, and I'm practically still a kid, so someone's doing <laughs> yeah. something wrong. You're a child at heart. Yeah, you're the guy that's iffy for team old membership, as I recall. Yeah. You keep trying to get in, and we keep rejecting you because you're not quite old enough. All right, uh, Phil, I guess we should start chronologically, right? So, 1973, American Graffiti. American Graffiti, clearly George Lucas's best work. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I, I, well, we can talk about that later, but it is, it is we certainly... We can talk about that now. We're talking about American Graffiti. <laughs> well, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I will show my. It is certainly George Lucas's most personal work because it is it is basically him uh, doing a movie about uh, his uh, uh, teenage years in Modesto. Yep, about uh, him. If you if if the uh, wiki stories are to be believed, right? Basically, every one of these characters is supposedly him at some stage yeah. of his young life. Although I find that highly optimistic. He died in Nam too. No, I, I I actually think that's a a fairly accurate thing, and that that. I think helps explain why the Ron Howard and and Richard Dreyfus characters are vaguely indistinguishable. But uh, <laughs> um, it basically, it is the uh, the last night before the aforementioned Richard Dreyfus and and Ronnie uh, Howard are going to go off to college, uh, and they are going to spend it the way apparently you spent nights in the early 1960s in Modesto, uh, standing Cruising. for. Uh, 
Yeah, you yeah. you cruise around town. It's actually San Rafael that they're driving around. San because... Rafael and Petaluma, both towns that uh, I re- I recognize them. Uh, we could pick yes. out the different locations in those since I live uh, not far away from both of those locations. It's, you could you could see it. But and I grew up not too far from Modesto, and when I when I was a kid, they was, cruising was still a thing. Just nothing else to do. Just drive your car around. That's they it. outlawed cruising in my my town. Mm-hmm. Of course they did. In. It was San Ramon. That's what <laughs> made it. That's well, what Danville, made it cooler. Yes, but, that's what made yes. it cooler. Then it was outlawed, and you would do it anyway. Now, Jason, a, a comment that's made early on by uh, by the John character, the the uh, Paula Matt. Yes, the the fellow who has never grown up and is stuck as the uh, as the number one racer, and he's kind of locked into this <clears throat> this state of being for the remainder of his short life, as it turns out. Um, but his comment early on is that things are already starting to fade in terms of the cruising scene. And I'm curious, when you came up, was the cruising scene just limping along? Was there like one car driving back and forth in front of the Dairy Queen? During Jason's rookie season on the cruising circuit. On the cruising yes. circuit. No, in fact, I have to say, um, by the time I was a teenager, cruising was not a thing. But when my brother, who was born in 1964, when he was a teenager, so let's say the very early 80s, it was still hanging on. But by the mid to late 80s, it was gone. Hmm. That's my cruising knowledge for you there. Well, in Tidewater, Virginia, where I I first became a teenager, cruising was actually still a thing in the 80s. But to be fair, the joke about Newport News when I was growing up was set your clock back 60 years. So So, perhaps it was just breaking onto the scene. (laughs) But yeah, it was it was. What I liked about this movie in part was how effortlessly it captures the sheer pointlessness of your teenager's Friday night, especially if, <laughs> especially if it does revolve around cruising. Like I kept I kept looking over at Phil and saying, I can't relate directly to th- these experiences, but it is hitting all sorts of emotional chords I thought I had successfully repressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if 1980s, if, if child of the 1980s, George Lucas is making this movie, it's it's hanging out in the mall. Probably yeah. it's going to the, the the hot dog on a stick, and there's too, a Led uh, Zeppelin soundtrack behind it because uh, you know get the lead out was something that happened on every rock radio station at nine o'clock at night. And right. so sure. you'd be sitting here listening to music that was already much older than you were, and wondering why where's our music and and ugh, yeah. So to continue introducing the characters, we've 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 met John uh, Paula mm-hmm. Matt, who's the yes. who's the 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 fastest driver in the valley in drag yeah. races and a is, bit of a is, cautionary is, tale too because as steve says to kurt early on you want to end up like john yeah <laughs> stuck in the town forever and then of course uh toad who is i guess a, a still a high school student and and still hanging out with these guys and and really something of a a a, a nerdlinger something of a a poindexter it's charles martin smith credited as charlie martin smith to make him cooler yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he was still a teenager. He yeah. and Ron Howard were both the only teenagers on set, and his mom probably still called him Charlie. So you yeah. know that's where he thought. he does know how to rock a pink sailor suit, though. So that's something. Mm. This is the way to think of Charles Martin Smith in this. In this is I wrote down he's playing the Rick Moranis part. <laughs> it's yeah, pretty yes, much yes. Ten years earlier, the first time I saw Rick Moranis, I was horribly confused. <laughs> For my money, he gets the best lines in the picture as well. We're, we're introduced to him actually. Um, he rides in on his uh, scooter and <laughs> crashes almost into immediately. A vending machine. 
Yeah, and and that that was not in the script. That was Charles Martin Smith legitimately crashing into uh, in, in, into things, and they decided, ah, leave it in. Charlie, you okay? And, All right, we'll take it. And it's fortuitous that they did because that sets the tone for him. Period. Mm-hmm. Like if he had, if he had successfully landed that Vespa, it would be harder to to sell him as the bumbling hapless nerd that he is the whole way through. I mean, this is a guy who who loses everything all night long. <laughs> he finds whole new ways to lose. Right. We follow the adventures of the, the this group of four friends as they uh, circle the same uh, uh, real estate in uh, Modesto uh, from from uh, dusk till dawn. So we've got John and we've got Char- Charlie Martin Smith as as Terry the Toad, and yes. then we we haven't we haven't we have two other fellows. Oh, I, Kurt. Yes, Kurt, who is uh, Richard Dreyfus, yes. uh, who who has a bit of the cold feet about going off to college, and we have. Uh, Ronnie Howard is Steve, who um, just just wants to get out of town. Who apparently cannot wait to get out. Yeah, and is so and is so uh, eager to get out of town. He he um, uh, tells his girlfriend, uh, who is Kurt, Kurt's uh, sister, mm-hmm. uh, played by Cindy Williams, who who you'll recognize as Shirley of TV's Laverne and Shirley. Um, tells her basically, we're we're going to see other people, but we're still going steady, okay? And uh, an arrangement that she is not uh, entirely sold on. I, I think this might be a relevant point to, to point out that this is the film that launched two ABC sitcoms. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard not to look at the success of this movie and say, this is why Happy Days, featuring Ron Howard, was created, and Laverne and Shirley, featuring Cindy Williams. They're both yes. set in the 50s, on, sitcoms on ABC. I know that the Happy Days pilot was actually shot before American Graffiti, but with the success of this film, basically ABC said, 50s nostalgia is the bee's knees, baby. And these shows were created with these two actors. Basically, Happy Days was American Graffiti and Love American Style uh, having a beautiful baby together Mm -hmm. and calling it Fonzarelli. So that was, um, yeah, you you are correct. (laughs) And then the audience cheers as the baby crowns and Oh, that's horrifying. (laughs) The baby was delivered right over a shark, though. It's strange how that happened. He shot across the room and ran into a jukebox that had been broken. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Suddenly started playing uh, little Bill Haley and the Comets. Put a glove on the little bottle and wave goodbye as it goes down the conveyor belt. (laughs) (laughs) Shlemiel, shlemazel. Mm -hmm. So now we we enter a uh, critical point in the recapping of American Graffiti in that the movie uh, jumps around from from scene to scene as these four friends spend absolutely no time together on Mm -hmm. their final night together. Yes. Without spoiling a lot, one of the things that you brought up and I apologize, we're now skipping through this podcast. Like yeah, we've totally American skipped Graffiti. the movie. Just like but, American Graffiti, we're skipping around to the better yeah, part. Mm. But one of the one of the things that Phil brought up when we were watching um, Breaking Away is he said, I cannot for the life of me figure out why these guys all remained friends. And um, I replied, well, it was, it was it's, it's a friendship of geographical convenience because these guys have probably all known each other since they were kindergartners. Right. And their their parents are probably intertwined in some ways. So there's always been pressure to hang out and, you know, subtly go, oh, we're having a barbecue with so-and-so. He'll, you'll see Stevie or what have you. And, you know, aside from the circumstances that they share, there's not a whole lot to bond them. And so when I was watching American Graffiti, you're right, Phil. It did make sense that they were just kind of splintering off and doing their own thing because – as far as they were concerned, two of their number were already headed out of the valley. And therefore, they were automatically taking themselves off the we have something in common list. Um, by virtue of leaving, they were declaring themselves outsiders. The whole tone of this movie, I mean, this is the end 
of the summer. This is the last yeah. hurrah. The friends are going off to school. You, it is about like a last, you know, everything is ending. So them them splitting apart and going their own separate ways on the night is, you know, that's what they're going to do anyway. We've been having fun all summer long and now it's over. I find it really interesting that Steve, for all of his valedictoria brav- bravura about getting out of there, spends the most time retracing his high school steps over and over again, like between the sock hop and, um, his inadvertent discovery that when you tell a girl you're going to see other people, she's going to, she's going to take that information and run with it. Um, you know, he talked a big game about getting out, but I kind of feel like his end, like the ending of his movie was, was pretty much pretty well tele- telegraphed by the end of act one. So, so let me leap in there and uh, here's how we will tell the tale. I will, I, I'll sort of uh, summarize the stories of the, the, the four characters yeah. mm-hmm. in, in the order that I, find them interesting. So <laughs> let me highlight two quick issues that I have before we oh, move yeah, on. Yeah, go, go ahead, Steve. First of all, and this is just a personal problem, I suspect, but as with every film I have ever seen with Richard Dreyfuss in it, something oh, yeah. about him just makes me want to punch him. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> in this movie, he's particularly bad because he's being wishy-washy and all he does is, hey, I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm going to go to college and I just don't give a rat's ass if he goes or not. But there's just something about the way he carries himself that just, it's, it's hard for me to enjoy anything that he's in, and this one is particularly bad. Um, the second, the second is that one of the main B plots of this thing, that the Terry the Toad B plot, uh, is contingent on Steve deciding he's going to let Toad have his car while he's away at college. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So let him watch it. He's not giving it to him. Who he's does that though? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he, his 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 first act as a car washer is to take off in it and drive away, and <laughs> well, Steve seems okay with that. He's got his mind on other things. Yeah, I, I I think it's it's Steve fancies himself as this benevolent and now little man. I give this watch to you, yep. kind of figure. Yes, I'm on to bigger and better pastures. <laughs> I kept this car, this cold hard lump of Detroit steel. I am the king of Modesto High or wherever, and now I'm going to to hand it on to you, and this will make you as cool as I was. That's right, Robbie yes. Howard. Well, I I think that I I think that part of it was I'm giving you the car because. I've grown too big for this town. I've grown too big for this relationship. I've grown too big for this scene. Totally. Yeah. I don't know. Beggar's belief to me that anybody would will his car to the nerdy friend. But it's more like you can, you can, uh, you know, just check on it, but it's going to be up on blocks mm-hmm. and uh, with a tarp on it and don't touch it. Just, just yeah. make sure it's still there. But instead, he's like, "No, drive it around, do whatever, yeah. and have fun." Terry the Toad proceeds to do so. I have a casual relationship with insurance. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I feel like the whole reason that Steve is different from Kurt, I think, is that Steve has this fantasy in his head of how it's going to work out. Like he's going to leave in. Uh, a, a, a hail of, of of teary goodbyes. The town will recognize that they're lesser without him, and and he's off. Like he's got this whole fantasy in his head about everything will freeze in amber the minute he leaves because he can't conceive of life in that town going on without him. Like that's just the way he's wired. Whereas Kurt is terrified that if he leaves and things change without him, it proves that he didn't matter at all. And you know, I think I think that's I think the fundamental difference is is that Steve never really planned to leave. Steve always just wanted to show the town he was better than they were. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by SaneBox. SaneBox is a product that lets you take control of your email. It works with pretty much any email account, and the way it works is SaneBox goes into your email, checks your mail 
and organizes it for you. It will move stuff into different folders. It will watch what's coming in. It will watch what you do with mail. If you get mail that you never want to see again, you drop it in the black hole and you'll never see any mail like that ever again. It analyzes what you're getting, organizes the results will automatically remind you when you need a follow-up email so you don't forget. If you're like me, you've got an inbox that's got a lot of things in it, including, in my case, I've got some stuff that's starred. I know I need to reply, but I'm not reminded. I forget. I lose track. SaneBox watches this and lets you know it's like an assistant who is going through your mail and reminding you about what to do. You can snooze emails so you can say, I want to deal with this, but I want to get it out of my way now. This all happens on top of Gmail or whatever else you're using with SaneBox. You can get a 14-day free trial, and if you go to SaneBox.com slash incomparable, you'll get a $25 credit applied to your account on top of the 14-day free trial. Check it out. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash incomparable. Thank you, SaneBox, for making email sane and for sponsoring The Incomparable. I'm also going to throw in a, a defense of uh, Richard Dreyfus here. Who yeah. I, Good luck with that. Well, <laughs> I, I, no, I know I'm not going to convince you. I, I, I don't have the same to Richard Dreyfus that, let's face it, lots of Americans have. Um, <laughs> 1970s Richard Dreyfus was really really went on a bit of a, a winning streak. And this was sort of the the, the beginning of that, because in a four-year period, he did this. He did the uh, Apprenticeship of Diddy Kravitz. He did Jaws. He did Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then he he capped that off with the Goodbye Girl, for which he won an Oscar. So that's, that's, that's a nice little run of movies there, where uh, Richard Dreyfuss could do no wrong, even if uh, some people might have wanted to punch him. even in jaws which i dearly love as a film there's something Mm -hmm. about him that just makes me want to slug him just haul off and pop him one that's like such a great part of the character in jaws though the idea that yeah that's that's what makes him eminently punchable outsider because he is so condescending to the the fisherman this was no boating accident yes yeah it works in jaws here here it kind of takes away from my enjoyment but that's me okay Mm -hmm. all right but um okay so the four plots Mm-hmm. The aforementioned Toad getting the car and going on the uh, the uh, Ulysses-like journey of uh, self-discovery <laughs> as he tries to uh, uh, pick up a girl now that he has the, a car at his disposal and actually succeeds because um, um, he manages to meet Debbie, who is played by a bouffanted Candy Clark uh, a- a- in one of my favorite performances in the movie. Um, he it's a manages- bit of an odd duck. Yeah, yeah. She, gee, I just love <laughs> a perfect, uh, perfect foil or or kind of mentor figure, really for for Toad, though. Yeah, right. She gives Toad an education. <laughs> well, the fact that she is so weird makes it okay that Toad is clearly punching above his weight class when he manages to <laughs> well, get her in the car. It's not hard to do for Toad. <laughs> Yeah, but you you look and go, okay, she's she's baddie, so obviously she wouldn't she would get in the car with 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 Toad, and they they go on an adventure that includes Toad trying to uh, buy liquor largely unsuccessfully until he's helped out by a helpful um, uh, convenience store robber. Yes, uh, Toad drinking too much liquor, Toad getting the car stolen from him, Toad discovering the car, Toad getting beat up by the people who have stolen the car until he's saved by. Uh, um, uh, Paul Lamatt, who, yeah. who his fortuitous who, arrival, 
who in in honor since John Syracuse is on the podcast, the deuce ex machina of that story, <laughs> where he swoops in and saves um uh saves a uh, uh, toad. So An amazingly choreographed fight, boy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out, John Woo. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fight because it shows exactly how dumb and pointless and confusing these things tend to be. Well, I, I would have, but that's fine. But I don't think they could have done better making it look like maybe one or two of those punches landed. Mm. They would kind of look like they were like like a wrestling where the you know siblings wrestling in their pajamas look more real than that fight. But yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think that is a byproduct of we we have X amount of dollars to uh, to make this movie and we're not doing reshoots. So yeah. they didn't have the thought technology of quick cuts. So it's like, well, you know, this is how long you hold shots. And if you people are fumbling against each other, it's, there's no way to fix that. It's not like we can make a cut every two seconds or every one second. They didn't know. You know, John, uh, Lucas's original script had them fighting from separate couches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I, I really enjoy the Toad storyline. I just I, it, 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 it is um, both very funny, very heartwarming, very cringe inducing mm-hmm. and um I, I think he is one of the more identifiable characters in the movie because uh, who who among us doesn't feel like Toad where we're we're mm-hmm. trying to to blend in and and look cool and we know deep down in our hearts we can sit in that beautiful car and and no one's going to 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 be fooled. Yeah. Yep. What is his arc though? Like he ends by that. We're going to skip to the end of the the night, but at the end of the night, he ends like he's disheveled. His glasses are broken. He's gotten beaten up. He's sitting on the curb talking to uh, Debbie and, and she's like, well, you know, maybe you can call me. Like we had actually had a good time. Uh, She, she describes her, you know, we had a good time because here's what we did. Maybe that was fun for her to watch all those things happen to him. Like a sort of an observer, (laughs) but Toe's got to be saying, that's your idea of a good time? Like, why would I sign up for that again? Why am I ever going to give you a call? Is like the idea I that I feel we like think you that- just described his arc as he's had that moment of realization where he's like, this is bull. And, you know, he's going to take that observation. It's going to make him feel better about being left out of the social flow for the next 12 months. Yeah. But is he going to call her? But she's like, maybe you can call me sometime. And he seemed like, he's yeah, never going to call, call her. her. Yeah, my sense is his arc is all that happened, but I've got a girl now. I don't, know, so I, don't know that's a good, I don't know that's a good match. That's one of my uh, meta problems with this whole movie is that kind of the the lesson, there are various lessons of the, but the, like the, the, the ideal that every one of these characters seems to be shooting for is an ideal that doesn't really sound that appealing. It seems like you need a follow-up movie for them to all learn that the ideal that they were all shooting for is, was also a lie. But that's not this movie. Well, there's more American graffiti coming up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's there not is. that movie either. I was going to say. I, no, know, it really isn't. But John, what you just articulated, the idea that this ideal that you're shooting for is really, it falls short of what you could do, or it doesn't quite meet up with the hype. I feel like that's also one of the points, which is that these guys have invested so much um, emotional capital into this this whole scene and who they are and how they interact with people. And is it really worth it? And some of them are like, well, no, no, it's not. Whereas, um, and, and I think that's one of those pivotal things you learn in adolescence too, is, is you have your own moment where you look around and you realize I have been prioritizing something completely wrong. And wow, the scales have fallen from my eyes. You know, I, I, again, I, one of the reasons I had like a full body cringe to this entire movie is because he kept nailing all of the notes that go into being like 16, 17, 18 years old and beginning to, um, 
try to imagine or articulate the life that you're going to have past high school and past these people that you've been thrown with wholly by accident or circumstance for the entirety of your life. Yeah, I do get that. I get the, like pervasive sadness over this whole movie of like of a thing coming to an end. Like a, yeah. this movie knows that everything you see here has to come to an end. It's just that yeah. I think I'm taking, taking it a step further and say, not only does everything in this movie have to come to an end, but that e even if it didn't, or even when it was happening, it was also very horrible. And like, I mean, we'll get to the ending ending where they have the, the gut punch of the faces over the sky as the, the final ending of the movie. I guess that's their way of fast forwarding and saying, and by the way, these kids still don't know what the hell's in store for them. Take a <laughs> yeah. look at this. The end. Yeah. <laughs> I love that epilogue. It's crap sandwich all around. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. Hope you like the movie. Welcome to the 70s. I think the reason Phil demanded that I be on this podcast is um, we watched that epilogue and I turned to him and I said, you know, the first time I watched this movie, I watched it with my parents when I was like 12 or 13 years old. And we got to the epilogue and I remember like, I remember feeling so shocked and so betrayed by the fact that two of these characters like then die off screen um, <laughs> and one of them never goes back to the hometown and then one of them stays. And I was upset that they had killed the characters. And then what upset me further was realizing that again, I was like, these guys didn't matter to each other. They had lives that I said, they just didn't matter. They had lives that moved on. And my parents said, yeah, this is what happens after high school is the people that you spend all this time with. It doesn't matter what they do because their lives are not your lives. And you have to, you have to learn how to, you have to learn how to move past that. And so I think when I saw American graffiti at a really pivotal age where it's like, yeah, you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know. And, and, no one's life is going to affect you like your own life choices do. That was that was uh, crystallized for me yeah. by watching that movie and that epilogue. Do they also tell you don't get into cars with strange men? Well, <laughs> <laughs> the other big lesson of the movie is if you're walking down the street. To be fair, no no one ever asked me, so it was never an issue. If they did, it. don't be like, meh, all right, sure. Th thank you for that segue, John. Because that, that leads me to the next uh, uh, plot point, which is um, uh, John's, uh, uh, Paul Lamatt's uh, storyline, whereas he is uh, driving around uh, trying to, to cruise for girls. He runs into a car full of giggly girls and says, hey, one of you want to ride with me? Well, you can. Doesn't matter which one. Yeah, you can go with uh, this girl's sister. Okay, Gee, Sister Carol. Judy's sister Carol. Judy's sister Carol is twelve. Yeah, She's 12. yeah. Yes, Mackenzie Phelps was twelve when she filmed all that. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Paul Lamatt realizes yeah. he has been had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> spends much of the rest of the movie just fuming about the uh, the evening that he's been dealt. I love that though. I love how angry. Oh yeah, no, it's it. it's such a very um, sweet interaction between those two, yeah. where he he becomes a little bit of her 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 protector and yeah. what i what i like about this um segment is it i haven't really studied george lucas i i get the assumption that he really likes westerns because the paul lamatt storyline he it's it's the it's the gunslinger it's mm -hmm. it's shane mm -hmm. he is the protector and yeah. he, he and he he drives around town and and everyone says oh there's a guy gunning for you and he's like yeah yeah i i know and and um i I just really like the um, the interactions between uh, him and uh, and Mackenzie Phillips, which I I, I think are um, 
delightful. Well, he's set up too at the beginning. Like one of these things is not like the other. Like he is, he's way too cool for the other guys. It's kind of amazing that they speak. He's got his fancy car and all of that. And so his story gets to be different from the other stories where he's got, he gets saddled with this 12 year old girl and he can't find her sister. And what I love about that is that my expectation for this character is completely undermined by the fact that he doesn't dump her on the side of the road. He talks to her and he's annoyed about it, but he like, he talks to her, he takes care of her. They have a rapport and yeah, you know, it's going in that direction, but it's fun because that is not what I expected when I, you know, when you first see him, he's super cool. So of course, he's a hoodlum. He, yeah. he, he runs afoul of the cops. He, yeah, he's uh, a troublemaker. Yeah. He pulls yeah. down Terry, the toad's pants and right in front of the girl at the drive-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What a rogue. But, but he has an affection for the younger ones. He's like the older brother. Like, why is he even talking to them? He's so much older than they are. He was out of high school long before they were out of high school. It's because he never he left feels, high school. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, all right. All right. Well, yeah. For all his talk it's, about not wanting to go to the sock hop, he's he's the one that's the most stunted in terms of his but, progression. But but he is hanging out with them. So I think his he has, glory days were in high school. And the reason he hangs out with these younger people is because they're still going to regard him as having some patina of success or cool, whereas people his own age are going to look right through him. Yeah. Because they recognize yep. that, you know, they recognize that he's on a fast track to nowhere. He's not getting to the Moose Lodge. Well, that's why he loves Terry, too. Terry the Toad, who because there's that big boosterism at the end where, you know, he's he's recognizing, you know, I, he was going to beat me and I'm getting old. And <laughs> Terry's like, no, no, you're still the greatest, man. You're the best. <laughs> You'll always be number one. You'll always yeah. be number one. Yeah, for another right. year anyway. Always have a hype, man. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Although I want to point out with the Paula Matt character is um, the guys I knew who were like this used to just put girls into two different categories, which were, these are the girls I want to um, have things to do with. And these are the girls that I, I don't, for whatever reason, I don't find them attractive. They're too young, whatever. And so while I think it's great that Paula Mott's character is the protector and so on and so forth, it's also broadcasting pretty clearly that he's, he's put her in a bucket where she's untouchable or what have you. It, it does. It, I should again, reemphasize that she's, is 12, 12 years old. Yes, that's a, that's a bucket that, is that should be untouchable. That is not a deterrent for frankly. some people, though. I mean, the, and that's that something. is a good bucket to, to, to put the 12-year-old yeah, in. Yeah, but he's not making comments like, oh, just you wait till you grow up. It's not like, I don't know if any mm. of y'all ever suffered through the movie Beautiful Girls, um, but there's no. a really creepy plot line in there in which a teenage Natalie Portman is repeatedly flinging herself at Timothy Hutton, and he basically intimates that were it not for the fact that there's like a decade and a half age difference between them and society frowns and that sort of thing, he, you know, oh, you know, if only you were older, we'd get along like a house on fire or whatever. And like, that doesn't happen here. It's sweet. That's the thing I, I kind of find unexpected about it. It does remind me, the thing that that it might even be a touchstone for them is is um, James Franco in Freaks and Geeks has his sort of soft spot for the for the for the geeks for the the you know Lindsay's younger brother and his friends yeah, he's Carlos mm-hmm. right with the Dungeons and Dragons episode yeah exactly yeah. it reminds me of yeah. that a little bit where where it, this is a nice fun story where you got the totally tough as nails cool guy and 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 it's revealed he's a decent human being underneath that's his dark secret is that is that he's not going to leave her on the side of the road and that in fact they have this conversation he treats her he doesn't treat her creepily she doesn't she you know she it's yeah i loved it i thought it was great it's only undercut slightly by the sort of uh sexual politics of the time being played for laughs in terms of one of her first things is to be like holding over his head yeah. oh there's a cop i'll scream i'll rape. scream that uh, i'm being raped yeah, yeah I, I had and that then, moment and then her, too. his way to get her out of the car to be like okay now i have to pretend i'm coming on to you which it still works in the context it's like look this is this is the only way to show this kid that she's not 
ready for what she thinks she's ready for. And yet yeah. the way he, I don't know if he was supposed to be this awkward or it's some really bad script writing. Like <laughs> I can't imagine that. You have to show him trying to come on to her and the, the lines that he has to say and how he says them. It's, it's the worst ever. Anyway, like, I don't, can you really be that much of a nice guy and do that bluff? Like, I don't, that's, that's borderline creepy, but all of it within the context of the movie fits because like, this is the whole mechanic. This is, uh, you know, predator and prey cruising around in your cars. And this is the mechanic that everyone has accepted. They're all participating in this game to no end that any of them can discern. Uh, and so it can be pl- used as a plot device in this, in this story arc. But it was those were two awkward moments. I'm going to chalk it up to bad script writing, mainly because <laughs> this is a script that also features the exchange. I can get tough with you too, you know, hard guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's hard to tell what it was supposed to be, you know, uh, yeah, double entendre, again, and what I, was just unintentional. Yeah, so, some of it might be bad screenwriting, and some of it might be I'm writing dialogue that teenagers would say. Mm. So. I feel like a teenager could could do a fake come on better than he did. There. I mean, maybe the yeah. point was his his heart wasn't supposed to be in it. And he couldn't believe he was doing it, and he's leaning in on her, and she's getting creeped. No, didn't like that. Bit. Well, maybe he's you know partly hoping that she's not into it. Well, it's the whole the whole idea. Yeah, he's trying to get her out of the car to say like right. tell or tell tell me where your house is, and this is this is what I'm going to do to make it. But up. I mean, he's he he keeps a very clear distance away from her for you know for for his own reasons, and also because you know there's the possibility that maybe she's like oh i'm curious about this i'll give it a go so yeah it does make sense within that context it was, it was certainly the, the highlight of the arc i think was them like uh shaving creaming the the neighboring car and, and letting That's the air great. out of the tires and running around that was nicely shot and that was fun i concur and, that was fun although that is one heck of a big can of shaving cream get a lot of mileage out of that you know it goes a long way because that one's been used already. She still has it with her from the previous car shaving mm-hmm. cream incident. In Eisenhower's America, men wanted big cans of shaving cream. <laughs> oh, damn man. It. She, she covers that entire damn car with that one can that's already been used once. It's crazy. So the um, we'll, we'll go quickly through the uh, Ron Howard-Steve plotline because we've already uh, really hit the highlights. Um, in a way, kind of the most poignant because he is he he thinks one thing and no, he learns everything. You are another. That, you are you. You think you are X, but you are actually Y. Yeah. Yes. So the movie begins with him uh, telling Cindy Williams, "We'll see other people." Uh, Cindy Williams saying, "Okay." After being initially put off by it, Ron Howard going, "What? No, <laughs> you weren't see- supposed to react like that. You were supposed to collapse, weeping, and accept it." And, and yes. Yeah. And and move on. And um they they have a fight, they get separated. Um uh he during all this process realizes that maybe he's not so eager to get out of this uh this one horse town as much as he thought he would, and um it all coalesces into the plot where again all four characters sort of come together, which we'll we'll get to in a moment. The the scene that I really like in the the, the Ron Howard story is, is is at the sock hop when they're doing the um the the unfortunately named snowball dance. Um mm-hmm. And, and actually, the best performance there is uh, Cindy Williams because she, um, you just see her go from just fury to sadness in in about the time it takes Paula Matt to uh, to to drive down the streets of Petaluma. Uh, it, it's just a really um, uh, a, a really great scene that uh, uh, conveys a lot of emotion and a lot of depth. And 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 for that, I kind of. Uh, like that bit of the plot line, the the Ron Howard character really doesn't uh, press a lot of buttons for me, unfortunately. 
No, me neither. And I knew kids like him. Oh, sure. He's there. I mean, he's he's there doing, uh, I think, what the what this requires, which is he's the wide-eyed, uh, you know, he's coll- going to be the college boy and all of that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the also, the this is the end of summer, but there's a sock hop. So I guess the, the, maybe the high school's already started. And so that they've, they've got an event at the, at the gym. It, it, to, yeah, it's like, it's like the orientation dance. And it's yeah. hard to see, not to see that as a kind of a, we need a scene with a lot of, uh, you know, with a, a, an American bandstand kind of dancing mm, and yep. things like that, and so it's 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 in there. That's the. By the way, speaking of locations, that's the that's the gym at the high school my daughter goes to. Uh, yeah, I saw I saw that in the credits. I was like, oh, that's for Jason. So, yeah, and Kathleen Quinlan, who is in this, is credited as Kathy because everybody hadn't got their stage names fr- right yet. Um, she did. She's Peg in this, and she's so she's City Williams' friend. Um, oh, she's great, and uh, and she was she had. Just graduated from that high school when she was in this movie with the scene set that she's in at the high school gym it's oh, just wow. what a weird experience to graduate from high school and and then be in a, a feature film in your gym yeah. it's totally yeah. crazy she is such a wonderful sower of discord mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah <laughs> the it's bathroom great. scenes were all good in this movie when they were, the kids were talking to each other in the bathrooms even like the boys making fun of the the zit makeup and then yeah. cherry it bomb, and- cherry bomb! <laughs> You're right. Uh, they, they, threw, they threw them in there because it's a thing that happens. And the girls yes. saying, you know, forget it. This guy's leaving. You got to forget about him. What are you yeah. going to do? See him forever? Like just this yeah. frank talk among when, once the, the genders are separated in, in their bathroom environments, all while looking in the mirrors. That was all good. Yep. No, I agree. If, the, if you go to the bathroom as a girl in high school, you, you develop like five best friends as you talk over the sink. <laughs> Truths are exchanged, insights are are, are plumbed. Mm-hmm. It's 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 beautiful. Come to think of it, and that's yeah. one of the few. Well, that's actually my biggest complaint about American graffiti is is perhaps that it is really and again, it's a product of the filmmaker because George Lucas has never been known to be particularly em, 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 empathetic towards lots of different points of view. But it's a story in which the women aren't really people most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and to be, to, be, yeah. to be fair, the men aren't always people. But Phil, you have but Phil, you have four you have four characters whose stories are treated as important. True. And True. in every one of those stories, a woman can nudge the action along, or she can be the reward at the end of the action, or what have you. But the scene where the women are talking in the bathroom is literally the only time in the movie where, like, they're acknowledged as human beings that are actually the stars of their own stories and have their own motivations and aspirations separate of how they interact with these these turkeys and chinos. Yep. Mm. And and so that's one yeah. of the reasons I like it so much is because it actually treats the women as people and that doesn't happen in a whole lot of the other scenes. I do like that Cindy Williams right because in the script Ron Howard basically says, "Oh, we're going to see other people," right? And she's like, "Um, right? I mean, I, I like that. I like that she is acting of her own self-interest and her own best interest through this movie because I feel like, you know, she could have been written another way where she was like, oh, sure, whatever you say, Steve. Well, right? and, I felt like no. in that scene, she was, she, it seemed like she would, had been so conditioned her entire life to be agreeable that when presented with something that was disagreeable, it's almost like she, she couldn't physically disagree in the moment, but merely had to go, all right, I guess this is a thing we're doing. Yeah. I must remain agreeable. And only later, as the movie progresses, she's like, wait a second, that's yeah. yes. Like, uh, yeah. culminating yeah. in the scene where they're dancing, and she's mm-hmm. pissed off at them, and the spotlight is on them. Oh, and that's so like, great. It, yeah. like, it t- took her, like, three scenes to figure out, like, wait wait a second, what? Yeah. What are you even, you know? And then she's, like, really had it by the time she's in the car with Harrison yeah. Ford, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I also feel like, again, part of the, the way Steve is written is he's obviously... 
he's obviously been the town's golden boy, like, you know, adults like him. And he was probably got all sorts of senior superlatives and teachers went easy on him. And there was always this presumption that Steve deserved to succeed. And when you are the girlfriend of the golden boy, you are probably like you. That's one of the trade offs you make as well. You know, of course. Why wouldn't you go along with him? He's obviously right. He's set up. And uh, then she realizes that, no, actually, he's a turkey. <laughs> I hate it when Richie and Shirley fight, though. It, it is sad. Yeah. I don't know how he got his own TV show. I mean, I, you know, the chronology is backwards. But, like, he does not have a lot of charisma in this movie, I feel yeah. like. Of all the people in this movie, I think Richard Dreyfus has more charisma than Ron Howard in this movie. Well, it, not to not to delve into happy days, um uh, uh, backstory, but really it was kind of conceived that um, Anson Williams would be as uh, like a co-lead in that series along with R- Richie Cunningham. And then everyone uh, gravitated towards Fonzarelli. Yeah, so which it, who, who is, I would say, uh, when I saw uh, John uh, the first time in this, I was like, oh, he's a he's 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 the Fonzie, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's way the, better he, than Fonzie. Like I, 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 I'd also heard the connection between the show and Happy Days, and I watched Happy Days, you know, my whole childhood. And this movie could not be farther than Happy Days in every act. Like the setting is the same, but in terms of tone and characterization oh, sure. and, and treatment, it's like nothing from this movie made it into Happy Days except for the outfits. Yeah. Although Richie is just as boring as Steve. And that's what I was going to say is that Ron Howard's not that interesting in Happy Days, too. That's why no, Fonzie true, no. became the star. But but he works as a straight man for Fonzie to be like, it's because it's a stupid comedy thing. It's got to be like, you know, he's he's your boring protagonist who things happen to and gets advised by the yeah. more powerful characters. That yeah. works in, in, a, in a sitcom thing. The problem with Steve and Kurt both for me is they're clearly the two that we're supposed to be relating the most to because mm-hmm. yeah. both John and Terry are they're both caricatures. Yeah, they're on the outliers there's there's no getting around that and and they're interesting because of that because because he does play a little bit with the expectations on john and terry's just kind of funny but i I think lucas does a lot of assuming here that we're just going to see the inherent interestingness in steve and kurt because he does because they're sort of him yes um but there's just nothing there so unless you're George Lucas or somebody who grew up exactly like George Lucas or one of these two clowns that we're supposed mm-hmm. to relate to, you just can't. Well, I like – so, I mean, I was going to bring up that – because we probably should talk about uh, Richard Dreyfus as Kurt and his Kurt, story. Yeah. I think I think what's interesting about that, from my perspective, is he seems uh, – he's, he's this kind of wishy-washy guy, right? The first time we see him, he's like, I, I'm probably not going to go. I don't know and all that. But so, so he's sort of meant to be frustrating and infuriating. And then he has a wacky – like a series of wacky adventures, like the wacky adventure plot. I saved him for last because of all the plot lines, it's the it felt the most contrived to me where he falls in with the local gang of toughs. <laughs> yes. the pharaohs. I, I got to say, I love uh, parts of the pharaohs and and uh, Kurt plot, uh, and uh, I think it actually goes well with with the with uh, the Toad plot too, because these are the a sequence of unlikely events that keep happening, and you, it, it's a long boy. I, I it was a long night, you know. It's one of those mm-hmm. kind of stories where this happened and this happened, and I, I kind of like movies like this. This is one of the reasons I like After Hours with Griffin Dunn. It's similarly like a series of ridiculous events. Well, someone has to like that movie. It is well, I I you know back when Griffin Dunn was a movie. 
movie star for the 90 mm-hmm. minute runtime of that movie. And then that was the end. <laughs> um, I think there is a genre of, uh, you know, uh, what happens at 4 a.m. One and, crazy night. Exact, oh, man. Exactly oh, right. Boy. And that's and that's yeah. what happens that here. That was the whole thing in the 80s. Yeah. And, and I think I think the moment that, that it turned uh, the corner for me is there's that scene where they're they're going to go in and rob the uh, the. The restaurant that's got the 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 pinball, the pinball machines. machines. Yeah, yeah. This whole place is for fun. And <laughs> and they uh and and they know him. They know Kurt. He's the golden boy. He's the, they're the guys got that their gave scholarship. him the scholarship. Yeah, yeah. you're yeah. gonna be a fine him. moose someday. And Kurt. I think I, I think that's funny because it's like what's gonna happen now? And he and he you know he talks to them while the other guys steal the money from the pinball machine, and then they go and and then and then tie the chain to the car of the cop and tear the cop car apart in the in the big budget action sequence of the film uh which <laughs> well, is one a, of them yes yeah you know, one one of one of the three uh there, anyway there were I, others? I, I i like i like the well there's a there's a car race but there's a car race at the end and there's here. the slap fight and that's about it mm-hmm. <laughs> um we we haven't mentioned the, the 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 most compelling uh part of the the richard dreyfus storyline which is he sees suzanne summers driving yeah. And is just and and she mouths "I love you, Adam," and he is smitten and needs to uh, uh, find out who. And his night is basically I need to find out who this girl is because the game is cruising for women, and the ultimate winning of the game is cruising for the special woman who will cure everything—the magic blonde woman. Well, yeah. yeah, I used compelling. There were air quotes. I'm sorry those didn't come. Okay, off. good, good. <laughs> over good. the over the transom, but uh, I thought I was going to have to hang know, like, up this like, call. Th- the movie no. seemed mostly in on that, like that it was saying, look, look at this guy. He's in such dire straits that he's yes. looking for anything to hang on to. And he sees the imaginary woman, Chevy Chase, Ferrari, Christy Brinkley style. And this like, uh-huh. this is his lifeline. And we we are laughing at him and realizing this is not going to save him. But by the end of the movie, he's looking longingly out the plane window at a white car. And I hope he's th- realizing that that was not the way to. But it's almost as if like. I know you're still out there, pretty brown lady. I'm, 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 I'm flying away. I, I don't. I don't understand if this movie was on the same page as me about the uh, about the futility of tying your hopes to nabbing the, just the right prey animal in in cruising as a solution to your life's problems. I was going to say, I think she's imaginary. And yeah. I th- oh, she I, absolutely is. Christy Brinkley was real, though, right? <laughs> and I, yes, yes, yes. Griswold works in the land of reality. Um, I think when he's, well, I, I think when he's flying away and he sees her driving down the road, that's one of those moments where he realizes that okay, the 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 town that I thought I grew up in and the life that I thought I had there, that's not entirely real either. And that woman, that fantasy of who she is, belongs to his fantasy of who he was in that town. And and yeah. I think that's what that's supposed to symbolize is, you know, it's 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 basically like one. It's basically like two steps before a bunch of je- ghost Jedi watching Darth Darth Vader's helmet burn with the Ewoks. Now, now <laughs> Lisa, you you were telling me originally they were going to do like a thing in the opening where Chris yes. uh, Suzanne Summers like appears and sort of oh, and and transparent. So the idea is that you see that she's always a phantom and a hallucination. Rather oh God, than, that would have been a terrible rather idea. than having to rather than having to infer it. But yeah, I. I feel like it's obvious from the movie, both because 
everybody has like a myth about her. She's a kept woman. She's a prostitute. She's yeah, I like legendary. the different stories about her because it's just like a small town. Like, oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, no, she's she's the wife of this old person. Oh, she's a prostitute. She's like everyone knows who he's talking about, even though yeah. it's not. The actual well, they person. all have this same fantasy. In yeah, the back and then of their there's minds. and then there's the phone call that happens where it's just incredibly vague. And what's really notable about that phone call is she doesn't say a word about herself. She doesn't mention her name. She doesn't say anything. It's all she's basically a mirror reflecting his desire back at him. And I think he finally gets that where he's like, "Okay, this is this is clearly not going to work because you're just echoing." Things. You failed the Turing test, <laughs> yeah, Suzanne exactly. Summers. Well, you're going to say that since the phone woke him from sleep, he never actually woke up. <gasps> Ooh. Yes, that seems pretty clearly telegraphed, at least to me. What I do like about his quest, and, and she is, I think, meant to be an impossible dream. And uh, but right. what I do like about his quest, honestly, the thing I like about it the most is that it leads him out to the radio station. And, Bingo! And and the radio station, so on the outskirts of, of town, mm-hmm. and I've been... I've been in that radio station basically like i know that's what it is in the valley like you just go out a stretch of road and there's a transmitter mm-hmm. and there's and and wolfman jack is there and wolfman jack this this movie um spent a huge percentage of its budget on music like eighty thousand dollars of the budget is oh, music yeah. there's no score mm-hmm. wisely the, the score is classic hits from the 50s and early 60s uh it, it's it's uh right up to 62 where it's set and wolfman jack is the dj and then he appears at the end of the movie when richard dreyfus goes and talks to him and he he makes the request to, to out to the blonde and the t-bird and what i wanted to say is i love the i love the soundtrack i love the way it's it's done where it's mostly ambient it's just like the music is playing and the mm-hmm. everybody's tuned to the same radio and yeah. and it is there is nothing more evocative of a hot summer night mm-hmm. than everybody driving around with their windows rolled down and the radio coming and especially if everybody's listening to the same radio station and it's just yeah. everywhere and then you add that it's the period music to set that tone it's brilliant it's my favorite thing about this movie is and every so often the lyrics match up to what's going on on screen yes yeah. Yeah. I was about to say mm-hmm. quite a lot of the time it does because I there's a lot of uh, really good musical jokes at Toad's expense. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. The music is mixed kind of like a Scorsese movie though, where it's like it's not afraid to put the music out front, sort of in the mix, where the music is actually more dominant than the dialogue, where mm-hmm. it just overwhelmed because it is the it is the point of the scene. It's like basically a music video, and also there are some lines of dialogue interspersed with it. So again, getting what you were saying, Jason, where like the music permeates and pervades everything to the point where the conversation you're having with the car realistically is very often difficult to hear over the sound of the music and all the other things that are going on and uh, i i definitely got that feel i i mean i don't know when when was mean streets was mean streets before this this was uh 73 um, about the yep. same time actually yeah but anyway scorsese would, would, would do it even more later of of like like literally putting the loud uh you know pop music soundtrack out in front of everything else, including yeah. the dialogue, which definitely changes the mm-hmm. feel of the movie. And I mean, it, and, and it, it gives gives a feel for place and time in a way that even just like the outfits in the cars doesn't. That's great. I had to look up the Beach Boys track because I'm like, surely that wasn't in, in, in 1962. And I was like, yeah, 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 it absolutely was. It was the song of the summer that year. George Lucas knew. I mean, they this was a this was uh, and this was the trade off, right? We're not going to have a score, but we, but the, the radio hits are going to be the score. And it, it works so well. It is so good. Yeah, I, I'm ambivalent about most of the um, the Richard Dreyfus storyline, um, but I do love that scene with Wolfman Jack because yeah. that that is the it's all a facade, kid. Yeah, yeah. it's all hey, have a popsicle. 
have people, a puppet. Did people not know what Wolfman Jack looked like back then? Because I knew what he looked like when I was a kid. Well, that's because you saw in. the Hollywood Squares. He had the Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, yeah. After, <laughs> after American Graffiti, he he became, you know, he was big. But, you know, in this he scenario, on it's Scooby-Doo, the 60s. Where he's he helped the Scooby Squad solve Did mysteries. you guys follow DJs? Was, was that only something? Because my girlfriends and I used to have favorite DJs. Because, you know, again, when you're a teenager, music is the the pulse of of every social interaction and my girlfriends and i could name all of the different djs and all of the different stations and um you know we didn't know what they looked like though we just knew them by their voices we could even rattle off whatever details they had or whatever quirks and this was still back when you could call the dj and have a reasonable expectation of having them pick up the phone and talk to you yeah and so I think for these teenagers, they probably had this idea that Wolfman Jack was one thing, and then Kurt sees that he's actually just guy in a Hawaiian shirt, a guy in a popsicle. Hawaiian shirt yeah. who has to talk to teenagers all night while eating melting popsicles, and he realizes <laughs> that oh my god, oh my god, this is I, my life has been built on a lie. My life has been built on many lies. I'm gonna get on that plane, goddammit. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because yeah. I, I tell you, the first time I actually saw a DJ in person I was like, this guy sounds so much cooler when I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> yep. Yep. Very well, the Wolfman so. was a bit of an institution. It, it, interestingly, he does mention at one point he calls out the address of uh, of a of a little stall on Third Street in Chula Vista, California, which is where he actually broadcast from, not somewhere outside of Modesto. Yes. I thought it was interesting that they left that in. My understanding is actually that the um, that a lot of his interactions and including the, and all the phone calls were from the off-air tapes of Wolfman Jack shows. Those were real, not. Although there's apparently the one where he where he calls George Lucas and George oh, well, Lucas of is course. the guy is the guy in the pizza place who I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> So what? Whatever happened to George Lucas? Yeah, uh, I don't know. He went on to make little art films. There yeah. is a fair yeah. amount of the of the uh, later Lucas floating around in this primordial stew here. Like there's a, there's a line very early on where John is talking to Steve and uh, and Laurie about going to the hop, and he says, "You two just got out your ass out of there." Even then, Lucas couldn't be bothered with the second take. It's yeah. obviously a shanked line. Could very easily have been redone. It was like, no, nope, that seems pretty good. Let's go with that. Yep. Uh, the 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 uh, I will say in Lucas's defense, um, again, as it was with um, Terry crashing his uh, his scooter, that a lot of it was. If this is going to look like an authentic teen movie, let's have them be stumbly and. Uh, <laughs> And bad with the dialogue and uh, and 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 choke on their lines so that it it sounds like actual seventeen and eighteen year olds talking. Yeah. Wasn't his but, one good idea in this movie that he shot it chronological? Wasn't that? His oh one? yeah, his claim to fame, directorially speaking, he had one good idea once in his life, and and, and was used to good effect. So mm-hmm. that by the end of the movie, everybody looked tired because they were tired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, we we should talk about the 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 ending of the movie just because we've we've kind of danced around it, and also we've been at it like an hour yeah. now. It's time to move on after we talk about the ending. Where they all come back together is uh, all night long. A young racer has been looking for uh, the Paul Lamatt character. It's played by Harrison Ford, who refused to cut his hair for the movie. Which is why he wears that ridiculous cowboy hat. Yeah. I like that cowboy hat. And the reason I like it is it shows that this is a guy who's hanging on to what his conception of cool was back when he was a teenager. So he's Bob Falfa. And it's mm-hmm. also telling that That's in almost dumb name. <laughs> every every scene he appears in, he has a different girl in the car because he's just <laughs> unpleasant to be around. Mm-hmm. Oh, Bob Falfa. <laughs> 
And so he and uh, John Milner finally have their big race in uh, Road in Petaluma that I've dro- driven down many times. And um, uh, uh, Cindy Williams is sitting in the car with Bob Falfa because she's trying to get back at uh, at poor Ronnie Howard. Uh, Toad gets to start the race, which is you know <laughs> the highlight of Toad's life up until the f- point that he. Uh, Got to hang out with Candy Clark for the evening. Um, there's a race. Uh, Bob Falfa is clearly beating uh, uh, John Milner. And then Bob Falfa spins out, has a crash. That's when, um, if Steve hadn't decided he was staying in Modesto, that's when he realizes that he is. Um, and uh, Paul Lamette realizes, oh, God, I'm I'm not a kid anymore. I'm I'm mortal. And uh, um, no way, John, you're the best. You'll you're always be the be best. The best. Forever. Mm-hmm. For the, OK, forever. Toad, we'll take them all. Uh, he eventually agrees. He's like, you know what? You're right. I will be the best forever. <laughs> the very next scene is just Richard Dreyfus getting on that plane and mm-hmm. flying off to his big yep. fancy college back east. Uh, Ronnie Howard staying behind saying, hey, I'll be there in a year. No, you won't, no, friend. You failed, <laughs> you failed the small town test, buddy. You're the small life. town test, you have an F. Yeah, I feel like name. when they do the little capsule descriptions at the end and it turns out that Toad is dead and uh, John is dead, that as far as Lucas is concerned, Steve is also as good as dead because he stayed in Modesto. And Kurt yeah. went to Canada, right. so he's also dead. So everyone's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a writer. He's he's okay. He's a writer. Yeah. He's, oh, yeah, he's a writer. The ultimate the ultimate life victory. You know, he I, made well, it. I'm, I'm wondering if the whole point to him being in Canada is he's a draft dodger. That's what my yeah exactly. That's yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's what my parents told me because I'm like, oh, Canada. My dad's like, no. And then he dodged the draft. I'm like, oh, yes, yep. thank you, yeah. Vietnam veteran. I had not considered that. Yeah, he could have saved his friend Toad, but nope, he was writing yeah. <laughs> so the last time i saw this movie was many years ago and when i'm watching it again like i remembered most of the movie in broad strokes but when they're doing the car race scene for a moment i said oh wait a second is this where cindy william dies like because they made the whole thing of like uh you got to be careful she does she doesn't want to be in the car you got to get out of the car you know I, I, like i knew the car was going to crash because i remember that and i know you know he's going to win the race because of a car crash i'm like do they kill her is that is that the ending of this mo- and like if this movie was a little bit deeper into the 70s and it was directed by someone other than george lucas oh, she would have died in that thing like that would have been the that end of the movie the if, 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 if it would have been martin scorsese she would have been wearing a red dress and <laughs> yeah. been, i mean like it's taking right up to her you know the, the, their relationship they couldn't get it together and like you wanted to see other people and they're just going in different directions and she just was goes into a car with a stranger and it's a bad choice and she wants out, but then she wants to get back at him and she's in the car and just, you know, you get, what are you doing in that car? So John tells her to get out of the car. She says, just be quiet. And then she dies in a car wreck. And that, honestly, that wreck with like no seatbelts and that kind of a car, they're not walking away from that. Instead, she gets up and she's so spunky. She's hitting Ron Howard two seconds later. So, yep. um, yep. I, I mean, I'm glad she didn't, but it would have been an even more seventies movie and a very different <laughs> movie if she had died in that car, because that really would have taught Steve, you know, like, You've made some bad choices. Yeah. Well, this is pretty early 70s. Things didn't really get gritty and nasty yeah. for a few more years. Yeah. <laughs> this was one of the first movies to do that epilogue where it posts, and here's what happened to all those characters we yep. spent with two hours, which um, uh, Animal House kind of took the piss out of five years later. I love with, I love both those epilogues so much. With uh, <laughs> Senator Blutarski and wife, and that's when you have to end the epilogue at the end of your, your v- movie. Vietnam is hanging over this movie, so you, you kind of almost right. have to say 
because because this is the question you're watching a movie set 10 years in the past these are a bunch of high school kids vietnam is happening what you know what's going to happen and so you kind of have to say yeah he went off to, and, and died in vietnam and and uh and, and so I, I feel like it almost requires that you address that and so there it is you know he didn't make it back and you know this guy stayed in town and sells insurance or whatever and then and this guy went to canada and is a writer and i i, I yeah yeah, I, I wanted to say before we move on that I did watch this movie thinking, what would George Lucas have been as a filmmaker if he hadn't made Star Wars or if he had or if Star Wars had not succeeded? Because I feel like he might have had a very interesting and very different career trajectory based on this film, because I think this is a, a really well-made film. It's got some issues, but I think it's really well-made and evocative. And, and given the budget. And, and then, you know, and then he made Star Wars, which is a huge hit and is a, is a great movie. But I do I do wonder because and that's the shame of it is that, you know, he, that guy never made another movie, right? after Star Wars he never he never got the chance to make another movie because by the time he was directing yep. movies again it wasn't the same guy it wasn't the guy who made no. American Graffiti it was the builder no. of an empire and it's a little bit it's a little bit of a, sh- a shame I think because yeah. I would have been interested to see him take a more 70s cinema path instead of uh, you know what ended up happening which was that he became Star Wars Incorporated I would have liked to have seen the Modesto trilogy yeah of your of your 70s directors, your Martin Scorsese's, your Francis Ford Coppola's, you can even include Brian De Palma in that group um, and Spielberg. Um, George Lucas's career path kind of became the least interesting right. of those mm-hmm. in that, like you say, it became George Lucas Industries where it's, we got to move some Kenner action figures, guys. So yeah. And, and and he obviously made a decision to lean into the business side, to not even direct the second and third films, to do all of that. He could have potentially made a different I think decision. I love but with the visual effects, too, because it, it seems like a lot of his yeah. stuff was driven by, it doesn't look like the picture's in my head. And it became less about what is the story I'm telling and more about how is the story being presented visually. It's like that dude in Boston who got so into the technology and the engineering that he dropped out of the band to just do recording technology the whole time you know you, yeah. get, you get some yeah. people who get who get sidetracked by by it doesn't match what's in my head and they they, they lose a narrative thread because we can give george a lot of crap for what he did later in his career but yes. you know this is a good movie and star wars is a really great movie and and then it was so successful that we never saw this young filmmaker make up what would the next one have been we'll we'll never know well arguably this is the movie where he was most moderated by the influence of others who were shoring up his weaknesses you know what i mean yeah it's true like Could so be. like this, this is this is a, a rookie type of thing um, and when he's left completely on his own, you get THX 1138 or, you know, the prequels. And in between, there are varying degrees of moderation and writing help and ability to say no to him that allow the good things. I mean, that's that's arguably what, what a Hollywood production machine is supposed to do. Right. Take talent and allow their good aspects to come through and the places where they lack fill those gaps. I agree that this is a movie that's that's put together very interestingly, particularly as you already called out, Jason, the way the soundtrack works is very cool. Um, I also wanted to call out the scene where Kurt is cabling the police car uh, and there's an approaching train, which he uses kind of as, as yeah. attention building music. It's almost like, you know, his heart beating as he approaches like the, the car. 
And the and the, as just as he's about to cable the car, the, the train skids to a halt, and you hear you know that brake squeal, and it goes very quiet. And it's just a beautifully shot, uh, wonderfully tense scene in the middle of this otherwise almost tension free movie. And it's uh, it's very cool. And I, I I do tend to give Lucas a lot of crap, but that's that is a sign of of where he had some definite genius. This movie looks good too, like no visual effects, but uh, you know the the change in quality of the light as the night progresses and comes morning works beautifully and is, is yep. weaved pretty well throughout the movie even though they're jumping around from location to location the night scenes with the street lights and, and the cars and the shiny chrome yeah the setting really is perfect mm-hmm. the yeah. setting is yeah. just straight up perfect um i will say that i had not seen this movie before uh although i'd seen bits and pieces of it many many times over the years this is the first time i sat down and watched it end to end and while I, 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 I'm glad I watched it and I enjoyed the experience. This is a slow movie. It's, I mean, I, it's I, deliberately I, paced. Yes. Well, it is, but it's, it's, you know, it's, I know this, this is a fond remembrance of a bygone time, right? And it's, 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 Lucas's nostalgia trip and it's the nostalgia trip of everybody who grew up in that era and lived this. Um, but I didn't. And so the fact that we have to linger on every moment of the sock hop or Kurt strolling endlessly down the halls of the high school and playing with the lockers and stuff, it just gets it gets pretty tedious for me. You didn't so, have the uh, the overwhelming feeling of heartbreak keeping you attached to the movie like <laughs> no. I did, and I think Lisa did too. Like just that, just that, just the entire movie. Like I was surprised by my reaction to it because I'd seen it many, many times in the past, but not for many years. And seeing it, maybe I'm older and 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 uh, more mushy now. But like just. Just the, the the heartbreak that pervades the movie, because as an older person, you know that this is all, you know, it's yeah, coming to an end. I, I, I think it's a mistake to dismiss this totally as a, a nostalgia thing. That was a, a big thing in the 70s. There was a big, let's make movies about the 1950s and early 1960s, like uh, this and Grease and Animal House. and But I, I think this one is better than those because the, there's actually a timeless poignancy to it uh about what you lose as you get older um that that um lucas briefly tapped into um yeah well the uh, briefly the, is the point appre- for me that i appreciate yeah okay. <laughs> because the, that's touched upon that's definitely there but it is couched in so much of the you know oh it's we got to throw in a cherry bomb and the zit makeup and literally everything that happened in the early 60s has to be compressed into this one night and there's just so much of it it just completely dilutes the the poignancy of it for me and, and it's it's not helped by the fact that i find both uh steve and kurt's stories <laughs> totally uninspiring they're, and they're the least compelling Yes, and, that's and, why we and I also am not super pleased about the image in my head I have now of George Lucas rolling around in margarine, which <laughs> I could have done without. <laughs> but you know what? It's it's this is a movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, I I have a great deal of respect for the way it's made, the way it's filmed, um, and I don't think I ever need to watch it again. <laughs> All right, shall we move on to get on we, our bikes and ride shall. away? <laughs> yes. yes, cutters. Let's, Let's ride out of the 1970s and into the early 1980s, but really 1979. Yep. It's breaking away time, Whoopee! which is set in the town of Bloomington, Indiana, home of the Indiana University. Yep. And we are our, our four heroes are uh, Dave, Mike, Cyril and Moocher. Yes. Who, young, young Beck Hansen and several other 19 year olds. who uh, um, basically are on their gap year after graduating high school. And uh, they are um, 
They are townies in a university town where these smart, handsome, rich people come to to learn, and they are sort of just they they are beginning to realize that they are uh, likely going to be uh, uh, left behind by all that. Um, nevertheless, our hero is Dave, who is played by uh, Dennis Christopher, and he uh, has developed a a very particular passion for bicycling. Um, yeah, especially. Especially with the Italian team, to the point where he actually begins speaking in a comical Italian accent oh. and shaving his legs and uh, doing all sorts of things to uh, upset his father, who's played by the magnificent. Oh, he's so good, Paul Dooley, yeah. in this role. I'm your goddamn father. I'm not your. As he repeats, yeah. I'm not your pop. I'm your goddamn. I don't have father. any Edie in this house. No. Yeah, this whole movie Edie, is racist yes, against Italians. Yes. Let's just say it, it. really is. <laughs> it yep. pretty much is. The best thing in this movie for me was the opening moments when the title card comes up, and it's like, oh, hey, that guy's in this, and that guy, and that guy, yeah. and 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 the the one guy I didn't know was, of course, the lead. Yes. Yeah. No, his his other friends I should mention are played by Dennis Quaid, who looks like he was carved from rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, he's like a marble statue made animate. It's amazing. He would maintain that figure his whole life. He was cut out of that quarry there. <laughs> who just yeah, looks like a Greek god. Yep. Yeah. And then there's Daniel Stern, who again less carved. Yeah. But still, this is a reminder: young actors, make sure you're in movies where you take your shirt off a lot when you're young. Yeah. Yes. Yep. You're going to wish you had when you're older. Because <laughs> this movie has a lot. I mean, the 70s in general had a lot of shirtless men. And this movie yeah. has a lot. Of, like, even just even just in the sidelines, in, in crowd scenes, maybe, you know, one out of every hundred men has no shirt. It's just normal. Hey, <laughs> that's what this movie's about, right? It, that's what his mom tells him. Uh, to keep your shirt off when you're young and you can. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, not, in some other words, I think. But, yeah, that was the gist of sure. it. Sure. So the other, the other two friends are Daniel Stern, who is the awkward, apparently basketball-playing friend. What, and, really? Uh, Daniel Stern plays an awkward loser? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really odd. And then there's Jackie Earl Haley, who looks gross in this movie. <laughs> yep. As, as Mooch. They're just freckles. He looks like every kid in 1979. Yeah. Basically, Kelly Leak gone to seed from the Bad News Bears movie. Yep. Yeah. You can so, see it coming in that movie, too. Mm-hmm. So they are, um, they are, uh, they, they are literally Steve from American Graffiti, stuck in the town, but without prospects, uh, other than Dave kind of being into bicycling. And, um, they get into some fussing and some feuding with some of the uh, fraternity boys from from Indiana University. Dave uh, finds himself uh, romancing a co-ed as in in his Italian persona. <laughs> oh, <laughs> co-ed who is apparently not very bright because no, no, no. The accent not being exactly. real. Exactly, Enrico. Yeah, he's Enrico. He's got a Vespa. He's very Italian. And then he tells <laughs> her about his papa on the fishing boat that is just cringy. Oh, yeah. No, every every scene where he that I have mixed feelings about that entire plot line where he deludes <laughs> this this apparently dim young woman into <laughs> believing that he's from some Italian fishing village. Because on the one hand, there's a certain sweetness to it in their interactions. And on the other hand, it's really freaking creepy. It's very sitcom. And there's a lot of this movie that feels like it was <clears throat> pulled from television in, in the 1970s. And perhaps not ironically, it would become a sitcom. Indeed. After, 
after the success of this movie. I mean, a lot of the humor feels like it's very, very TV. Yeah, the, there's the scene where Daniel Stern gets his fingers stuck in the bowling ball. As, oh, that's, as that's they, above the level of TV. Come on, that's quality <laughs> entertainment. There. Come on, no. <laughs> that's stooge level humor. This was this was an 80s movie. Like This is a 70, movie made in 79. But when he's swinging that bowling ball around and they're having a brawl in the bowling alley, that's an 80s movie. Right there. They just jumped <laughs> oh, yeah. forward. <laughs> I do like that he just he's got a bowling ball on his hand now. All right, and and the, and the, the college it. kids, the, co- the college mm-hmm. boys, are right out of eighty central casting. Yes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They they went they went straight to Revenge of the Nerds after this one. Uh-huh. They just just rolled off of one set and right on to another one. The main baddie is played by Hart Bochner, Ellis, UC San Diego graduate who who you may remember negotiating with uh, Hans Gruber in yeah. uh, Nakatoni Tower. You could tell uh, that's how he would end up in this movie. Indeed. <laughs> Yes, if they did the little American graffiti scene <laughs> right, exactly. at the end of the movie, he would be killed in Nakatoni Tower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, speaking of 80s movies and and him, uh, there's that perfect scene at the end where where everything has worked out and Ellis can't help but smile you and clap. You can't help but you gotta, it's the end of an 80s movie, you gotta be like, oh, nerds, all right, I'll give it to <laughs> you. You guys are okay. <laughs> Those plucky cutters. And, and you can almost hear him thinking, you're all right, Larusa. That's you're exactly. all right. Exactly. <laughs> I want to mention, by the way, uh, the uh, the dad. The, the line that I really like. It was, while we're talking about the, it's this whole Italian plot, um, the dad says at one point, "I don't want any Eni in this house. Zucchini, Fellini, Fettuccini." I asked my wife if she didn't know what, what zucchini was because I found this an unbelievable aspect of the movie that there could be adults in the United States who didn't know what zucchini was, and she assures me that it is. At least plausible. It's just yes. squash. It's 1979. Well, it's blooming. It is certainly plausible in Indiana. Yeah. In in And they explain it. It's like yes. a squash. He wants some American food, like French fries. As as the child of two Indiana natives, I can assure you, <laughs> this movie is painfully accurate. They do not know how to cook zucchini. What do they? Do they not know what it is, though? They wouldn't know how to cook it if you if Mario Batelli showed up in their house. Just tell them it's summer yeah. squash. Yeah. Maybe they'll get it. I don't know. That's that's the rationalization I have for Catherine believing his Italian accent, too. Well, wasn't she from the East Coast, though? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I don't know if she is, though. She's in a, she... a waspy enclave of Connecticut and had never met an Italian before? Yeah, that's a good point. Also entirely possible. Anyway, that has to work because for an 80s movie contrivance, you know, like, that's, again, the serenading, the balcony, fraternities and sororities, college kids versus townies. This movie mm-hmm. was ahead of its time mm-hmm. in many ways. Indeed. Yeah. And again, it's one of those movies that kind of defies plot recaps. The plot recapper realized while watching it, uh, regretting his choices in life. <laughs> and um, uh, suffice it to say, there are lots of misadventures with the four friends where they all fail in their own ways, really. <laughs> they all fail in their own way. Dennis Quaid tries to race against Tart Botchner at the at the stone quarry and mm-hmm. and comes up comes up almost drowns finishes third in a two-man race um daniel stern gets beat up by the uh by the the, the, the <laughs> hart bachner again just the guitarist. by the frat boys yeah mm-hmm. by the frat while boys, attempting yes. to serenade in character as italian guy the mm-hmm. uh the girl in the sorority house yep <laughs> i think i've mentioned that jackie earl haley is short and gross yep. in this movie <laughs> As people remind him repeatedly, hey, shorty, don't forget to punch the clock, and which he literally does by punching the clock at the job that he's at. Don't call me shorty. When they call him chicken, he just can't help but react. Yeah, that's exactly right. But what eventually happens is that the president of uh, Indiana University, actually played by the president of Indiana University at the time, really? calls everyone together. Yeah, yeah. And says... 
hey, hey, I can't have this fussing and feuding in my town. So what's going to happen is that uh, we're going to have a team of uh, townies in the uh, Little 500, which is a, a bike race that they actually have at uh, Indiana University where yes. you uh, you ride around uh, for for uh, uh, however many laps and you 200. can trade off. And uh, uh, the cutters are all, this is great because we've got a guy who's uh, really good at riding a bicycle. Dave rides the whole race and we win. Yeah. And, you know, I'm willing to accept almost everything that happens in this movie, but when the punishment for starting a fight in the student union is that they're going to let the townies into a bicycle race. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it seems yeah. peculiar. That's when you have to have a car wash to stop the real estate developers from taking over. Come on, it's an 80s movie. It's unorthodox, it's but I'll allow it. What a coincidence. It turns out that Ellis is a big cycling enthusiast, too, mm-hmm. and he's on the team. Well, he's, he's a yep. big man on campus. He does everything. Bicycles at dawn. The first thing out yep. of his mouth is, but they're not good enough. Yeah, that's a great line there. Totally encapsulates the whole but thing. But, sir, they're not good enough, and I should they're be in an 80s movie. Enough. What am I doing Me? in this movie? <laughs> I'm a villain! I'm snooty. So, uh, the um, the the race, so since you mentioned the, the Little 500, that is the climax of the movie. Uh, wh- one of the things that I noticed at the end that I thought was kind of charming is that it is mostly just wide shots of bicycles racing. Yeah, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. continuous cut for the last lap and a half. It's one like cut. Just let's all watch the race together. Is that not like there's no cameras on the bikes? A modern movie would have like the close-ups of like various teams doing various things, and it's like no, you get you get occasional moments of detail, but it's not really about the race. And then you just go back to the shot of like here's everybody racing. Um, I will say though that's counterpointed with the announcer who we hear in the background explaining what's going on. Mm-hmm. He is strangely specific as if he is actually just the narrator of the film it's uh <laughs> that's the part that struck me is that the mo- the video is like uh the pictures are very generic and like let's watch this together but then the announcer is overcompensating and literally narrating the movie for us would it shock and surprise you to know that the announcer is the guy whom this is all based on nothing would surprise me about this movie at this point. yeah well it is it's it's <laughs> it's the guy that is the dude so I thought that worked pretty well because they had the crowd noise up over the announcer so that you can barely hear the announcer because, like, if you were there, you'd mostly just hear the crowd screaming. And I think that that scene at the end where they follow them, they follow just the, from a distant shot up in the stands of the bikes going around the track once and then yep. twice for, the, you know, the white flag and then the checker flag, it, there's no cutaways. They yeah, just great. follow them, and all you hear is the yeah. crowd, and you, you can barely hear the announcer kind of saying his announcing thing in his boring announcer voice, but you're not really paying attention, and the crowd is screaming. That's that's A plus. It's brilliant. pure sports excitement. That's the point at which I thought to myself, "You've done the impossible movie. You've made <laughs> me give a crap about the results of a bicycle yeah. race." Well <laughs> exactly. done. With no, with no stakes. It's not like if you win this race, you get a scholarship or something. No, nope. no. <laughs> it's just the soul of the cutters that's at stake, John. Come on. Yeah, I know, but you know what I mean. What happens if I win the race? Well, you you, you you've won the race and you get a nice trophy. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. And what if I lose? Well, you get to continue living in the town as if you didn't participate in the race. And you know, the race is, uh, it's a test. The whole idea here is, is that the, the Dave is gonna, is gonna run the whole race for them, which I, I do wonder, like, wow, he's that, that good that he can run all the laps and everybody else can have four different guys. And well, he's keeping up with the Chinzano guys. It was was pretty well established by the rest of the movie that he is actually. Yeah, it's well established in the movie that he is a very good cyclist. The only time that he fails is when he's racing again. Against a professional Italian team, and they're jerks, rotten eighties, and they and as as so many Italians do, John, <laughs> they they cheat him. 
<laughs> no, they, after flipping him off, they, they do him dirty. Yeah, they insult him, and then, then you know, yeah, and then they, yeah, they, and, they and, stick something in his spokes. At least, like one of the greatest father-son scenes in that movie, though, when yep. he when he breaks down and and, and begins to weep all Daddy. over his dad. Yes, and he says, "Daddy," and you see Paul Dooley look panicked for a moment before finally hugging his son. Yep. He's awkwardly trying to figure out what happens. He looks down at his wife and sees that she's got tears in his eyes. He's like, "Well, what are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? I, I, I've lost I believe control. He orders her to do something at some point. So to go back to the race for a second, um, my point though is that is that since Dave is the star of the of the group in terms of being the star of the movie, but also the star bicycler, what we get is just enough drama to show the state of mind of the other characters. So he gets hurt and they have to replace him and so we get uh you know dennis quaid doesn't want to do it but daniel stern game does a game effort and jackie or haley does a game effort and then finally dennis quaid sort of like he has his moment where he kind of turns around and says i'm gonna do this and then of course dave is able to re-enter well the guy the guy goes by from the frat and says nice try kid and that pisses him off yeah right gets on the bike and takes so they get just enough participation in the race for their character moments and then dave gets back on the bike and wins the race and that's yeah it's perfect they each get their little chance at at victory and a little chance at redemption oh it's fantastic and it works out like it's fairly you know for for a movie of this kind realistic that mike is fit like he's not a bicycle rider but he only Mm -hmm. has to do one or two fast laps and he's pissed off and so he you know he does keep them in it like the constant announcing of their position and the the trades and everything make you believe that they they wouldn't have been completely out of contention yes yeah you rightly yeah, sense that Daniel Stern probably would be a train wreck on the bike, and it turns out that he is, but <laughs> yeah. he's just good enough to keep in the pack somewhere in and, the middle. And, and Jackie Hurl Haley falls way behind. Can't really reach possibly. the pedals. Oh, it's hysterical when he's on the bike, too, and he can barely reach the pedals. His little legs can't possibly keep up. But he gives a game effort. <laughs> Every one of them puts in their little their little bit, and they get their little... A little victory. So, so to characterize yeah. this movie, uh, as we already talked about it as an '80s movie, this is not really what when I think of this movie, what I think about. But watching it again for the umpteenth time, it occurred to me that this is a movie in the grand tradition of '80s movies that glorified a single sport. There's mm-hmm. movies about BMX riding, movies about you know swimming, diving, sure. running, like you just Jim, whatever. Jimkata, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Just pick us, pick a sport in the in the 80s. You can make an entire movie, and the point of that movie was like it's a soccer movie, it's a football movie, and the whole point of the movie was glorifying a sport. That's not the whole point of this movie, but this movie hits all those notes. Particularly when I was a kid, the heart of this movie was him riding his bike behind the truck, which is not the most important part of this movie, but it was like. Look at this cool thing that they're doing in the sport that you d- previously didn't care about, but suddenly it seems really cool. And I don't, all of my friends wanted to ride behind a truck to see how fast you can go on a 10 speed bike. Oh, I love that movie. scene. By mm-hmm. the way, Phil, I technically, Jim Cotta is a celebration of both gymnastics and martial arts. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be accurate here. Yeah, yeah no, it's, you, you say that this is a focus on, on bicycling, and yet we don't have an actual bike race until an hour and one minute into the movie. Well, it was, it's the whole training thing. Like the idea that he is dedicating his life to this, that the 10 speed bikes are a cool thing. Yes. But I mean, it's not about the biking and though. that he can, he can use to pick up girls cause he can catch up to them. Even though they're on a motorized scooter, he can bring back her notebook and he, you know, he's training out in the rain on the little, the, you know, the, the, the trainer wheelie thingy and he's riding behind the truck and he races with the Italians and, it's again like this is the movie is so much more than that, but it fits neatly right into that slot because I, I'm True. trying to think of another what is it, what is another '80s bike racing movie? I mean, you've got you've got Rad for BMX, but that's a different thing. <laughs> right. 
The gleaming the Cube, is that a biking thing? Gleaming the Cube, no, skateboarding movie? No, that's skateboarding. Yeah, skateboarding. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Kevin Bacon in a movie about bike messengers? Quicksilver! Okay. Quicksilver, yeah, goddammit! Quicksilver! You guys could make anything cool, like bike messengers? I bet they're cool, too. Sure, we make an indie yeah. movie about them, and bike messaging is life. This, this movie is not a movie about a used car salesmanship. There's a different movie about making that cool. Yeah, so <sighs> yeah. The, things I lo- the things I love about this movie... Um, I love the fact that you can watch it as a young man, as I did, and be all, yeah, young man, you've you've capsul- you you've encapsulated my feelings about life. Or you can watch it now as an old man, as I do, and go, that, that Paul Dooley character really resonates with mm. me. Um, love that. Love the Paul Dooley-Dennis Christopher relationship in this movie. E- really? Um... Okay. What? Uh, so here's my here's my thing. I think the Paul the the, the dad father son relationship ends up being great, but at the beginning mm-hmm. when he's all like, "Oh, it's Italian. Oh, I don't know," and all that, I feel like I I I, I don't like him, and I feel like the, he's a kind of a ridiculous caricature at that point. So okay. it takes me a while to get uh and, and to get to get to understand him. He's got the whole he'll thumb his diploma at me thing which seems yeah. so I mean again, do I think that there are people who are reluctant to support their children in higher education because they are seeing them go further than them even though they should be proud of them? Yes, there are those people. But the way he does it is so on the nose and so broad that I don't like it. It's only when he finds acts like a human being in the last part of the movie that I appreciate that relationship. He's not a human being in the first part. He's just a caricature. Well, in his defense, the Italian stuff is incredibly irritating. I can it, kind of see is, where he's coming but, from. But he doesn't respond like a human being to it. He's just as a dummy like response but the dynamic in the house is that he makes these pronouncements and that his wife moderates and everyone d- agrees to basically ignore his ranting and ravings because this is the dynamic in the family like no one is taking him seriously and the son is not being crushed by those things the son is crushed mm-hmm. instead later when he's in his bedroom and hears him through the wall when he's not when he thinks he's speaking you know privately or he's actually angry about it but but yeah i think that's part of the sale here is that he's not a good dad especially in the beginning and he's his own frustrations are coming out yeah my note says dad sucks <laughs> oh there's so much else though that's goofy and and caricature in this movie that to me it just kind of blended in i mean the yeah. whole his whole italian thing is way over the top i mean you know obviously you've got the the ridiculously uh, 80s villain performance from ellis and i mean everything is is just kind of a little off kilter and a bit more. I feel like this movie is the spiritual predecessor to a Christmas story where there's this kind of sense of, uh, and they both take place in Indiana and they both take place around a dyspeptic father and a moderating mother. And the idea is that your life becomes imbued with as much drama as you care to put into it. And half of the time you're living inside your own head. They're basically the same movie. Let, let me just say as the son of a caricature dyspeptic father from Indiana. <laughs> oh um, God. No, painfully on the good, nose. Good thing you dodged those jeans, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Parts of this movie really resonate for, for our Phil. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's just say, uh, why are we watching this documentary? <laughs> I kept saying during, yeah, during the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it works for me. Okay. Oh, my God. No, I, I love the I love the scene where Barbara Berry puts the moves on, puts the moves on him with the Italian opera. <laughs> That he, is puts out, he puts out the candle with his fingers as his big, yes. uh, you know, his yes. bravado. Yeah, that's his come move. Yeah. That's his finishing move. But the bit where he sensuously pulls his pocket protector out to the yes, Italian opera is that's just a good visual humor. Yes. hysterically mm-hmm. funny. Yes. 
and I do. I I actually like the scene where he goes back to the quarry, uh, to yeah. to where where he where he worked as a young man. The, His the, glory the, days the at the quarry. Character. Sure, yeah. Want to drive a few wedges? That's all. And uh, realizes I cannot do that anymore. Yeah. I it is all all past me. But yeah. um, the other thing that I really um enjoy about Breaking Away um is the fact that it's directed by an Englishman. Um, uh, Peter Yates, who his other big movies are Bullet, uh, one of my favorite cop movies, by the way, and possibly a future old movie mm-hmm. club entry. He did Hot Rock, which is a really good uh, caper movie, and um, um, he, uh, later on he would do The Dresser, which is a nice character study. And it just, it's always astounded me that this guy who did not grow up in America really um, managed to tap into this little slice of America, middle America, mm-hmm. Americana uh, in, in perhaps a cliched way as, as, as some of you think, but really it, 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 it really has an authentic feel to me again, as, as someone who, well, I didn't grow up in the Midwest. I have parents from the Midwest and they're this, both very Indianan, very Indianan. And this really resonates with me. I can't tell you enough how, yeah. how much this movie feels like I'm watching a, a, a family movie being shot. Wow. Trust an Englishman to amplify the class issues though. Cause uh, yeah. that's one of the, my, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is the one where uh, uh, Paul Dooley's character talks about, you know, he takes great pride in having mined that quarry and having built that university. But then once he built it, it was made really evident to him that you're good was, enough to the build buildings it. Were too, the buildings were too good for us. Yes. Yeah, you're good enough to build scene. it, but you're not good. At, I love that scene. And um, yep. I, I feel like that scene needed somebody who's outside of America and can actually say, yeah, there is a class system in the U.S. and here it is, because... I don't know if an I don't know if an American could have approached it with the same um, clarity and vigor that he did. Well, '80s movies love doing that too. The rich kids versus the poor kids. There was a lot of movies in the '80s, especially uh, young people movies, were about class uh, and about you know the, the preppies versus the you know all yep. the, the slobs versus the snobs. Mm-hmm. And and it, most of those movies were trying to make you rec- uh, you know identify with the disaffected people because they were the majority. You weren't really uh, identifying with the preppies, unless except for I guess class. Maybe that one was the opposite, but yeah. Well, look at who makes movies. It's not preppies. It's film nerds. Yeah, yeah. This uh, movie hits me very much in the same place as uh, its contemporary, The Bad News Bears, hits me in terms of the way it's filmed and the way it is very true to a certain part of the country in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, the the mm-hmm. the uh, those guys with blue jeans and no shirts swimming around mm-hmm. in a quarry is that yeah, could not shorts. be more seventies. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it really puts you in the place and it does it in an interestingly different, more Midwestern way. You know, obviously, Bad News Bears is uh, Southern California and it feels very different in that respect. But it also it just feels very, very real and gritty in a way. Yeah, this has the seventies in it, like with the with the water race scene. Uh, again, could could be in any eighties movies. You know, wouldn't wouldn't be in the eighty movies. Him hitting his head and coming back bloodied and playing that not for laughs, but for a serious moment, so his friends can jump in and save him. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a seventies movie. Eighties yeah. movie makes him fail comically and ma- turns that into a joke. And you know, when, when I was a kid watching this, this is another one of these movies that I, I remember watching and realizing there was something different or special about this movie as compared to the other movies that I was used to seeing, not because it was like a rated R movie that I shouldn't have been watching or something, but because 
it took itself seriously and was willing to show what I thought as a kid were these, you know, deeper truths about life that other movies and adults won't show you. Like the, the, the people behaving badly or feeling badly and doing things that are, are not admirable and making mistakes and failure and, and there being consequences mixed in with all the rest of the schlock, you know, that would come to be standard in, in 80s movies. But that that really spoke to me as a kid that, like, I took this movie much more seriously than all those other movies, despite all the fun things that were there to entertain me, that, that it took its character seriously and that there was actual real emotion in it. And, and you know, of course, I'm identifying with the disaffected kids and uh, hanging out with each other and feeling like losers, even though, you know, I, I, I felt like even though I knew I was going to go to college, somehow I watched this movie and identify with the people who are never going to go to college and, you know, until the end. And maybe it's that sensibility or maybe it's just the sort of gritty 70s-ishness of it. But I kept expecting some sort of tragic event to occur. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he, yeah Mooch, uh, Mooch, kind of, Mooch kind of had a target on his back for a lot of yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you know, Dennis Quaid disappears into the fridge, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to drown. He's really early in the movie. And then a little bit later, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's, uh, he's chasing after the truck. And I'm like, he's going to run right to the back of that truck. That is an 80s montage sequence there paul dooley gets up on top and starts driving a wedge into a big block of rock i'm like he's gonna have that heart attack right there he's gonna die <laughs> and he did a, a couple scenes later and it but I mean, it was kind of like a minor thing yeah he had that heart attack refund <laughs> but it just there was sort of that sort of sense that something there's there's going to be a tragic moment here having never seen it before i didn't know if it was going to be light or if there was at some point going to be a real low low yeah, so comparing this to American Graffiti, after watching both of them, I felt like American Graffiti wants to tell you that all this is going away, and Breaking Away wants to wants to tell you that uh, good things can still happen to you in your future. Like that's what it's trying. Like that the, the Jack Earl Haley will, will get married, and you feel like he will have a life as an adult, and will leave all this behind. That the Dave will go to college. Like that. That this movie, I mean, I don't know if it's like lying to you and wants to leave. It's not as bad as you think it is. Actually, things will work out in the end. Um, that that you will. You will have victories again, that you will regain your sense of self-worth and good things will happen to you. And American Graffiti is like, that won't happen. My, Mike's cop brother will occasionally, like, yeah. hug Mike. Right. Like, that, that in the end, yeah. they were all, they, they were friends who cared for each other and they had families who cared. Like, it was not, everything's not as bad as you think it is. You're, you're yeah. a bunch of whiny yeah. white kids in the Midwest and it seems bad <laughs> and it feels like you're, you're being, you know, under the thumb of these college kids. But in the end, you have it pretty good. Yeah. Just because you're stuck in this town doesn't mean you're necessarily lesser than that writer that moved to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Just because you're stuck doesn't mean you're stuck. I mean, that's what I love about the ending of it is that Paul Dooley's on a bicycle. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. and he has that kicky sign in front of his used car dealership now. And the fact that you see him on the bicycle, I think, is just huge, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and I love that it shows, I love that it shows that evolution of his character. And I feel like that's actually the biggest piece of hope there is that it's never too late to to try something new and become a person you didn't expect to be. Yep. And Paul Dooley is younger than all of us in this movie, isn't he? Like, there's another thing watching him. I'm looking at his hair. It's like, his hair is all black. How old is he when he made this movie? <laughs> I don't know, but I feel like he's younger than me in this movie. And I'm watching it and I'm going, <laughs> oh, that doesn't feel good at all. Uh, no, he was 50. He was he was uh, in his early 50s. Right. Yay! A, a little bit better than he's using hair dye. That's yeah. What's there. I, I, so I I agree with uh, what everybody's saying here. I, there is one thing I wanted to point out here. So this this movie was nominated for uh, uh, for screenplay. No, it won the Academy Award for best screenplay. Um, and you know sometimes the Academy Award is not the best thing, and sometimes the best thing isn't that great. But I, I'm going to say this. I'm shocked that this movie won an award for the screenplay, if only because I find 
essentially everything Dennis Quaid says into this movie to be painfully awful writing. Um, there is <laughs> it's no... A, the opposite of show, not tell. This movie tells you, does not show it's you. T- yeah, I, in fact, John, my note says, Dennis Quaid's speech at the stadium is the classic example of tell, not show. He literally just says it. everything he's feeling and everything that's going mm-hmm. to happen and what his internal conflict is. And that's not the only scene in which, especially the Dennis Quaid character, yeah. says, oh, I'm a symbol of somebody who peaked in high school and now doesn't know what to do. I'm never going to be the quarterback anymore. It's like, oh my god, it is so bad. I mean, so I think it won for writing because, like, it is telling it is telling truths, right? But it's having characters actually say them. And when I watched this <laughs> as a kid, show the show don't tell thing was not a glimmer, you know, in in the corner of my. I, I had no idea about that whole concept, so it was delivering to me directly in a way that I couldn't picked up. It was more subtle. And watching it again as an adult, having seen it a million times as a kid, I'm like, oh. This movie doesn't understand show, not tell. I'm willing to forgive it, though, because it's such a beloved movie from my childhood. But yeah, that's... Once once you get past uh, Dennis uh, Quaid's abs... Which are again spectacular, uh, shredded, shredded like lettuce. <laughs> Some um, of us are still not past them. He, he is the weakest character, yeah. I think, of all the ones in the he's movie. He's an idea uh, more than a character. Yeah, his acting yeah. is yeah, good. Exactly. Like in the scenes where he's not speaking, the, the expressions on his face, <laughs> and and the few outbursts that he does have that aren't you know George Lucas on the nose uh, <laughs> t- style dialogue. I think he he does. I mean, there's a reason he went on to further stardom in this movie. I think he does a good job with it. But if he's, you got to read the lines. You got to read the lines. And he's a, he's a he's a movie star, not an actor. But um, the the. The, the the other four movies up for best original screenplay that year were and justice for all all that jazz the China syndrome and Manhattan mm. and um, so you know yeah so you know maybe not the strongest field. I like this movie better than any of those movies I should yeah, yeah exactly. it may be the best of those yeah. and it may not have been a strong year for screenplays I just I had that moment where I kind of was like wait a second this one for the screenplay because the Quaid dialogue is just awful it is in fact yeah. if I if you wipe my memory of this movie in American Graffiti and then you you played them both for me and said which one was written by George Lucas I would say <laughs> this one because this dialogue is prequel level dialogue from Dennis Quaid it is just there's nothing there. Uh, no, I, I think the, the expressions are sophisticated and well put together. The fact is he's saying them out loud is the problem. Yes, well, like, so that's, that's you know, exactly Lucas it. Lucas would have simplistic uh, ideas expressed out loud. At least this, I feel like this, he's saying the subtext. Uh, yeah. But the subtext is is good. But he's one He's one of four characters that all have that all have plot lines. It's it's true. And, and actually, five if you count the dad. So, I mean, you got to put some shorthand in there. I wish Quaid, yeah, I wish Dennis Quaid had been given more to do to show us his feelings about this matter, yeah. but instead he, like, literally goes to the stadium and points down and says, I will never be that quarterback. I'm like, got it, got it. Okay. I mean, like, they can fit that in there. He can have one line about them staying well, the same age. He's a simple age, man. But, he's going to have a like, simple and obvious speech. The, the worst is when he talks about the unlit cigarettes. Like, just have him do that for the whole movie and we'll figure it out. Instead, it's like, I even I can't bring myself to light a cigarette because I think I'm going to have to go back into training. Like, that's a perfect thing for you to write in the margins of your script while you're writing it. <laughs> Let's just yeah. stick it in dialogue. But you can't have the characters say yeah. it. Yeah, his best moments by far are like the scene where he's at the quarry and the college kids show up and he just looks at him. Yeah, exactly. right? In his eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's very good at that. Quaid is not the problem, right? It's the lines that he's given that I think are the problem. Yeah. But in a movie that I like, but that's just, that for me, that was the false note, especially I think the second half of this film is way stronger than the first half because I don't like the early scenes with the dad and I don't like those speeches from Dennis Quaid. And then I think it gets a lot better later. I don't know what, what yeah. that means, but that's... 
that's that's and, sort of and, how I felt. And you can let Dennis Quaid do it. Like the line I quoted in, in the Slack earlier was like, when he's angry, you can have him snap. Like you're not the quarterback here, Mike. Well, at least I was once. You get that one outburst. Sure. That's what you get. At least I was once. You get one outburst. You don't get him to say. And for the rest of the movie, I will continue to speak the subtext of my plot line. <laughs> yeah. uh, of the four friends, though, the one that really I think does the. Ha, ha, has the best thing going for him is uh, the um, the the Daniel Stern character because um, uh, he he has a few lines where it's okay yeah you're 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 showing not telling but what I really love about him is in the bike race um, you know gross gross Jackie Earl Haley has his wife to to hug and <laughs> he's just looking around yeah Dennis Christopher gets to hug his parents and um, uh, Dennis Quaid gets to hug his brother the cop right Den- uh, Daniel Stern has this moment where he's looking around for someone to hug and gets no one and just that sort is, of yeah clap. it's so heartbreaking yeah. that scene yeah. right there really heartbreaking well, they allude to it earlier when they say well Cyril's dad remember when when uh, yeah. Dave, Dave's dad talks about well Cyril like he is you know he's the one obviously as a as an east coast neurotic you identify with the most because he is the most like inside his own head and yeah. seemingly doesn't fit in anywhere and never will and probably will be the the loser of this group forever but he picked up that guitar quick though seeing him just drift in the wind like he's trying to be happy he's but like there's nothing there yeah. well this is the reason I like Dave's dad is he seems to sense that a lot of Dave's friends need to be parented i mean there's a reason why mooch is at that table a lot yeah. and um i get the sense that dave's dad probably also is a is a gruff ear for cyril every once in a while too because cyril's dad is well established as a jerk store and um yeah you, you don't get the sense that that dave's friends are very well parented at all and that his his parents are the only ones who are involved and that all of his friends like that and kind of need that on some level as well yeah, well moocher's dad took off to chicago and left yeah. him in the house yeah expecting yeah. him to sell it the, somehow uh, yeah the house that's for yeah. sale you got the for sale side yeah. mm-hmm. they, i mean the yeah. movie does does have bits it's not like they all the subtext is on the screen in the dialogue it's yeah. just some of mm-hmm. it is but yeah. the, the rest yeah. of the movie is is pretty strong it's just that like the idea of like you have to have shorthand because you've got a lot of characters and you got to fit all in that's the art of screenwriting you got to find a way to get the five because i think this does a really good job of, of weaving together the arcs and having a bunch of good scenes like uh, and a bunch of good ideas for cinema like when he's driving his beat up oldsmobile backwards next to the mercedes like you know and they're sort of hot rodding around trying to chase after the college kids and everything lots of good things that work as movies it's just that you know a, a few dialogue scenes they feel like you have to get these seven ideas in and we need to get in and out in this amount of time. And it was like, all right, well, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say what's supposed to be going on. I throw up my hands at this part. Yeah. But again, as a kid, uh, um, this never occurred to me watching this movie the many, yeah. many, many times. It never sure. occurred to me that they were saying this out loud because that, that's what I needed to, you know, as a kid, you're not going to pick up on this stuff if they don't like literally come out and tell you in the same way that you read, you know, books when you're in middle school and the English teacher has to explain to you, this is what this means. Because if the English teacher doesn't explain it to you, you will have a dim, vague, distant awareness of it, but not really ever put two and two together. And this movie just comes out and says it. You're like, yes, I feel that too. Thank you, movie, for saying that. I do want to call out as a as a plus the the scene where he's racing with the Italians and they jam a rod through his back his back wheel, sending him into the dirt. I, I actually had a hard time watching it the second time because it is so heartbreaking. I know. You watch his dreams mm-hmm. just shatter. That's right. That's mm-hmm. why that's why when you're a kid you're like, Yes, yes. Life life is terrible. Never meet your idols is the lesson there. Although I will say that when the guy messes with his shifters, the look of sheer outrage on his face is absolutely hysterical. I laughed and laughed, but then he's in he's in the gutter and that's it. 
he's done. The posters are coming down. Yeah. The, he has that that uh, that chilling line where he just lays out, everybody cheats. I just didn't know. Yeah. That's it. His life's over. Oh, well, this is unfair. Uh, professional bike riders would never do that. <laughs> of, of any nationality, let's say. <laughs> I got to say, though, you have to say that Cinzano is uh, apparently really, really good sports or they apparently just never saw this film <laughs> because they are thanked in the credits. <laughs> well, they are thanked in the credits. There's the truck is a Cinzano truck. That's right. It is yes. like product placement before there was product placement. Yes. For but then the, the, the point of the uh, the Italian racers from Cinzano is uh, they're, they're jerks. Pat cheaters. <laughs> yep. They're jerks. <laughs> Uh, also, Phil, uh, when you mentioned Peter Yates, you, you didn't mention the most interesting thing about him, which is that in 1983, mm. he, he, two of his movies that he directed were released. One of them, uh, multiple award nominee and winner, The, the Dresser. The Dresser. Yeah. The other, great movie. Krull. <laughs> <laughs> and I just am fascinated well. that the same man made both Krull and The Dresser, and also that the man who made Krull also made Bullet and Breaking Away and The Dresser. Yes. I don't know how that is possible, but it is... Well, this is sort of similar to the John Borman trajectory. <laughs> I think there's a deeper story there that we need to explore. <laughs> well, they can't all be gems, no, can they? No, they can't all be gems. <laughs> no, they can't. <laughs> Amazing. No, just got, I, I released two movies this year. Peter Yates says. <laughs> One is The Dresser. Oh, you've heard of it. Yes. Well, many Academy Award nominations for The Dresser. Yes. Oh, I liked it. What was your other movie, Peter? Krull. <laughs> that thing with Ken, what's his name, and the glaive. It's a glaive. Sure. Breaking a glaive. Anyway, um, I like Breaking Away. I like, I liked, I enjoyed both these movies. I, like Steve, I'm not sure I would say, like, I would rush back to watch either of them, but in, in a certain mood, I think I could enjoy either of them as this you know, nice uh, kind of nostalgia trip. Uh, the the coming of age stories are are nice. The ensembles are interesting. I like that these are mostly both featuring actors who would go on to do other things and are recognizable and so young. Yes. That is a big that is yep. a big win too. So they're both charming in their own ways. Hey, you got PJ Souls in this one, stirring stuff up as usual. Another seventies eighties movies mainstay. Yep. Halloween's PJ Souls. Breaking away also ahead of a time ends on a freeze frame. Oh, and it's oh, such a freeze go. frame it is. That's right, because he turns back when he hears his son speaking in French. Yep. He's speaking Bonjour. French now? What? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then and then the Indiana fight song, which went on to become uh, another trope. You know, every movie in 1981 mm -hmm. and 82 ended with the Indiana fight <laughs> yep, song. Yep, that's right. Uh, anything we have not covered about these films? That we no, we, 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 think, we've I got think it. we got it. All right. Well, I'm going to close up. The old movie club, then, and thank our guest, Lisa Schmeiser. Thank you for being here. Movie club. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be invited. John Syracuse, thank you. Uh, I can't believe that I had to be on here with all you old people, but I'll get over it. Yeah. Old movies. Steve Lutz, thank you. Stop. The hell you doing? Those are my French fries. Hey, no more Eni in this house. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Philip Michaels, who chooses the movies. Thanks. These were, I enjoyed watching these movies, Phil. Thanks for choosing them. Some enchanted <laughs> You can write these lines, George, but you can't say them. And uh, I've been your host, Jason Snell. We will see you next week on The Incomparable. Thanks for listening. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.